basically, I went later on to Michigan and I did flight training. And God kind of brought it all together there. Yeah, you remember, it was basically sometime during the week and I was just say, you know, God, you want to change my life. It's obvious. And so here I am. Now, I heard gospel before. Uh, everything went in one side, came out the other. Yeah. And so God, step by step, kept drawing me closer into him. And once I realized what he had given me, it's like, how can I not share this? This, this, is, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Friend, it's always a pleasure to have you stop by as we meet with our guest. And, you know, sometimes we have the wonderful opportunity to talk with an old-time friend. You know, you've got those people in your life that you don't necessarily see that often, but when they stop back in town, it's like you haven't missed a beat. It's It's like family. It's like family. It's the fellowship through the Holy Spirit in Christ. And it's a wonderful family to be a member of. Dirk Meyer is a longtime friend. Matter of fact, we go way back, back to my wedding day. We knew each other even before then. I think we were in some classes together, but I remember on my wedding day, Dirk was assisting the photographer who took our wedding pictures. We've known each other even before then, but this has been well over 38 years, 30, almost 40 years that we have known each other. You texted me say, I'm coming to town and would like to stop by and see you. I don't think you were expecting a radio show out of this, were you? Well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, with you, it's always a surprise. I thought actually it's going to be initiated live radio, but <laughs> you said, no, nah, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> well, it's probably better to keep it like this so we can control the, the content. You might say something well, that will embarrass me. I know. In this I know. way, I can control that. <laughs> what are friends for anyway, That's right? What, what are friends for? <laughs> There's some things I want to talk to you about, and some of them I don't think we've ever really talked about before. I want to bring us up to date on your family. And I saw the profile picture on Facebook. And in addition to you and Sandy in that picture, I think there's seven, I think, seven other human beings, I think, in the picture, if I count it right, along with you and Sandy. I don't know if all those are your children, uh, spouses or, or what. I don't know. Give us up to date. and Tell me where the family is now. All right. Yeah. No, actually, we have five arrows, as we call them, from God. And uh, these five arrows, the uh, first one came in 94. It's a guy. And then 96, another guy. So Gil and Elliot. And then uh, later on, we had two daughters, Tessa and Isabella, again, two years apart. And then three years later, we had one more son, and his name is Dirk Willem. So in that picture that you saw, there's indeed two husbands. They're kind of adopted sons now, too, and they belong to both girls. Well, I was doing, Dirk, a little research on your homeland, the Netherlands. And I I discovered that since 1815, the Netherlands has been a kingdom officially called the Kingdom of the Netherlands. King Willem Alexander has been the Dutch head of state since 2013. His wife, Queen Maxima, is present on many of the official occasions, and she also has her own duties and responsibilities. So there's still a lot of history there from your homeland. Yeah, I mean, actually, it goes way back earlier. Uh, The family, actually, that became the royal family came actually out of Germany, an area called Orange. That really is very interesting at that point, it was not really countries, and there were small kingdoms in Germany and royalties. And uh, the first king, even before it was called the Netherlands, uh, he actually really defended that country in a way that, uh, that I think still has some 
aspects where people are proud of that royal family. Now, the one time I think Northwest Airlines had a direct flight from Memphis to Holland. Even KLM. Right. Yeah, and together I, with them, I think they were working together. Yeah, yeah I, th- I remember that was taking place. Also, some interesting facts. The Netherlands is one of the most densely populated countries in Europe. I didn't realize this, Dirk, but Dutch men are the tallest in the world. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. I knew that Dutch women were tall. But I didn't know the men uh, also were kind of up there. You don't look like you're that tall. Well, I mean, compared no, no, to I, I'm mean, just six foot one. And that's in the last couple of years. I actually grew an inch <laughs> oh, when okay. I'm my old age here. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, I mean, Dutch also have never been really big in basketball. Soccer, that's the game in the oh, Netherlands. Which is football this is really how you say it, right? Yeah, we say football there, yeah, yeah. Also, the national anthem is one of the oldest in the world. It is the lowest country in Europe. The Netherlands is the world's biggest flower exporters, which we know we get some beautiful flowers from that country. Amsterdam has over 1,200 bridges. One-third of the Netherlands is under sea level, which kind of goes along with the fact that it's the lowest country, right? Yeah. Actually, two of the provinces have been made by the Dutch people. They actually drained the lake— levies in a lake and then they drain the inside and pump the water out into that lake. And actually that lake initially was not a lake either. It was actually a bay. Really? Yeah, and they first put a big levee across from one end of the land to the other. So yeah, they've been at it since before the (laughs) Second World War. Oh my. Yeah. So you still have family back? I have a brother there, yes. And he has a son. And his son has uh, three kids. So that's about it. My parents died uh, a while back. What brought you to Memphis in the United States originally? I uh, wanted to be an exchange student in 1976. And as I was looking uh, to go as an exchange student, they asked me where did I want to go. Well, I said, well, Hawaii sounds great, and <laughs> Alaska also. So they put me in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. What was that experience like, that transition to stateside life compared to living in the Netherlands? Well, you think it's all Western culture and it's the same or similar, but there's so much difference. I mean, I got here, program was a high school program. I just had finished it, uh, high school in the Netherlands. But this was a high school program, so I got one more year uh, being a senior. So as I became a senior at Central High School here, I met Paul Gentry and a few other guys, and they were great all-American boys. And within two weeks or so, they took me out, and they took me out to Wendy's. First of all, we never go out eat in the Netherlands at a restaurant, especially going to school. Two, we wouldn't drive a car because nobody has one or is not even allowed to drive because you had to be 18. And then basically just the whole idea of, of having it at school, that, that's totally something awkward. So here I went with them going down Poplar and suddenly they stop at a red light and call out Chinese fire drill. And I, <laughs> what in the world is going on? And it's the guy said running around the car, pull me out. I need to run. And Dennis, get in. <laughs> when the light was turning green. And on top of that, Paul had a car that one door actually was bashed in and it had plastic on a window. Cars like that, you couldn't even allow to drive in the Netherlands. So it really is interesting just to see uh, how I was actually literally dunked <laughs> into the American culture. Oh, my goodness. What a great experience there. It was. Yeah. So when you 
came to the States, did you already have a relationship with Jesus Christ? No, I didn't. As a matter of fact, I grew up in a little village, and people went on Sunday to different churches and didn't even look at each other. Or even around a community and were asking for some charity issues. They always say, so which church is this for? And if it was not that church, nobody wanted to have any part of it. And to me, it's like, okay, this is what God is about. I don't need that kind of a God. Yeah. So, and I didn't come as a Christian at all. Was it through your relationship with Paul and those friends that you discovered who Jesus Christ was and what he did for you? That part of the problem, all right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had a friend also in the Netherlands. It was a beautiful testimony. Then also Paul and his friends, they loved the Lord. Uh, and then basically I went later on to Michigan and I did flight training. And God kind of brought it all together there. Yeah, you remember, it was basically sometime during the week, and I was just saying, you know, God, you want to change my life. It's obvious. And so here I am. Now, I heard gospel before. Uh, Everything went in one side, came out the other. And so God, step by step, kept drawing me closer unto him. And once I realized what he had given me, it's like, how can I not share this? This, this, is, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it that he gave you that you discovered? Well, what he gave me actually was hope and a purpose. I started to see the things around me, people dying, cancer, whatever else. I never had a sense that I was bad. In the Dutch culture, it's very much self-made. I mean, look at the country. You said, you know, one-third is below sea level, so we just put some levees out and, you know, make it land, right? <laughs> so I had quite a lot of self-confidence, but God knew that. And he needed to basically break through that and help me realize that I was needy and that I needed him to change my life, to give it a purpose beyond dying and beyond getting sick and beyond the hopelessness that actually is in our world. I think that's beautiful that you say that because we all have really a God-giving instinct for love to be loving and and really to love. And one of the things that we do, I think, and it's from our fallen nature, is we love the wrong things. You know, we choose the wrong things. (laughs) And and God has this perfect love that he wants us to experience, but we're trying to fill it with this imperfect love, you know? Well, actually, it goes back right to the beginning in the Bible. I mean, God has a beautiful design. And his design to create us was to have fellowship with us. And he made us in his image, but he made it in a context that everything was good and there was life. There's no evidence of death. There's no evidence of evil in the beginning of the stories yeah. in Genesis. Yeah. Yes. But then he warns us because it's a reality. There is evil, the opposite of good. There is death, the opposite of life. And he warned, don't touch that. Don't touch that tree. Don't. Well, actually... He didn't say about touching, don't eat from it. Yes. Right? Because that was one of the challenges that Eve dealt with as he told the serpent, well, I couldn't touch or eat it. And where the serpent said, well, uh, that's not true. Because, see, once we took that, we went outside God's design. And there's consequences. There is consequences. Major consequences. And I think that's also part of the whole issue of people say, well, how does it work with the origin, original sin and the sin all coming from Adam? Well, once the world is broke, we're all born into this broken world. And we have to deal with the same issues of brokenness. But the beauty is, and that's what I discovered is, God wants to restore that relationship with us. And he knew we had to go through this in order that we don't have to deal with it anymore in eternity. Yes. His mercy was so great from the beginning, even though it's hard being in the midst of it, it's a broken world. But if we don't recognize we can't deal with good and evil, 
then we'll continue to come back to that in eternity. Derek, what a great word. Well spoken, too, by the way. And, and there's that verse, too, that says there is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Yeah, we yeah. think we're on that right path, but then we find out that is not the right path. Uh, for over 33 years, is it, since 1989, you and Sandy and the family have been serving as missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Does it seem hard to believe it's been that long? I don't know. I, I, it just goes day by day, and uh, I'm still ready to go on as long as God lets me. So, yeah, so, I don't know. Well, so put some pieces together for us in a brief statement. How did you meet Sandy, and how did God direct the two of you to serve him in the mission field? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, when I became a Christian, it's like what God has given me, how can I not share that with others? So I became quickly involved when I came back to Memphis, Tennessee, because actually I wanted to come back here. I knew a little girl that I really liked at that point. Estelle McDaniel was her name. And actually, uh, she also was a, quite a witness in my life. But I became involved in a city ministry. God had different plans as far as wife, because I went also to Bible college, because at that point I was a pilot. So if I really wanted to serve God, well, logically as a pilot— and uh, I started, started to check, and basically they said, well, if you want to be that, at least for the Southern Baptist, I was going to Bellevue Baptist Church at that point, you need to also have a, a theological study behind you that you basically also have your, uh, what you call it, MDiv. Yeah. So I started going to Bible college, but I learned about a lot of other organizations. I learned about Wycliffe Bible Translators. And as I also got to know Sandy as well, and God had a perfect time on actually of bringing her and me together when she was ready and when I was ready. It was really neat to see how God worked it out. But her heart was also to serve into missions and to reach those people that don't have God's word yet, that do not have access to his beautiful message. Tell me about the recent oral Bible translation, the workshop. I mean, this is something that you engaged with. We were talking before we went on microphone in the post-pandemic life that we're living in now. A lot of that's been conducted online. Yeah, yeah. Well, getting involved with Bible translation initially as a pilot, uh, that didn't really pan out because we were supposed to go to Indonesia, waited for four years, and God had different plans. Because at that point, they started to realize that there's not that many people in many of the cultures that we serve that read. And we even can teach them to read, but still 10, 20, sometimes 30%. And then how can people really grow? But people are on the way orally. So there's a lot of oral traditions, even actually in Hawaii, they have still some traditions that go all the way, all the way back to Genesis. And you find it in many peoples. So, the realization was, how can we meet people where they're at? Maybe with oral scriptures. And so we start to say, but that is a natural spoken way. But if I basically share something orally with you, I need to understand what I'm saying. Otherwise, it's gobbledygook to you and gobbledygook to me. It's only something I memorized up here. But it needs to come from here. And so the idea out of, those, out of this uh, work came that how can we maybe do oral Bible translation work, so have a scripture that is recorded passage by passage, story by story, that is really communicating the meaning. And that's what I got involved in. That's what indeed oral Bible translation is. So that's when you actually take these voices like to a studio, I guess. That's actually the end product. The whole process actually of oral Bible translation is part of the whole plan. Because during that time that you actually are working to understand a passage, you need to check it in the community. 
It needs to communicate. They have to deal with words that they don't fully understand. So throw a religious word in there, it's borrowed, it's not going to work. Yeah? yeah. So you have to basically unpack the message and then allow it to communicate as a passage that people can internalize. Now, that's different from memorizing. Internalizing means it make it mine. Yeah. And that I can retell it, not from memory, by reciting the words, but actually tell that passage with meaning. And this is really one aspect of the of these 33 years that you've served with Wycliffe Bible Translators, Dirk. Uh, one time, you were actually showing the Jesus Film Project in other countries, right? Yeah. Early on, when we didn't go to Indonesia, I ended up with a new initiative helping people to get involved in Scripture outside of print and called non-print media, or the whole approach was called Scripture Engagement. And so that really was neat. And that's what tools like a Jesus film, which is still being used a lot. And actually, they're coming out with another tool. I think that's animated. Uh, that's kind of will be replacing it. But there's all kinds of tools out there nowadays that can help people that are not readers, that can engage in ways that is very beautiful. Okay, so what would the workshop look like that you conduct? Right. So getting back to oral Bible translation, uh, as that started to develop... I was in the second early part, like 2011 and on, in South Africa. I was coming together with people, actually physically, and we did passages, and we talked to the passages, sometimes via a trans, uh, translator that needed a bridge between me and the language that the people were speaking. And then the people would start to process that passage, just like I said before, and test it in the community. And that actually became then a part of their scripture that was already part of their heart and then we record it so that they have a record like we have a book Yeah, and keep it on the computer like a book so there's no real difference in the end. Wow. We, we still think <laughs> print is, there's all kinds of media indeed that uh, has its pros, uh, pros and cons but the beauty of it was that technology was there to be able to start doing that. So in a workshop, uh, when we are working with people in the beginning, we start to simply with passages that they can relate to and help them to listen to these passages and make it theirs. And they learn to process through to it accurate, natural, clear, in a way that people would accept it. It has the quality, all the qualities of a printed Bible translation, except it's communicable. It has a message that people can understand. It doesn't have to be unpacked or explained by yeah. the preacher. Well, I have a couple of direct quotes from those who have attended these workshops. One says, I'm grateful for our workshop that I can understand the stories deeply, and it will be a big help, especially when we review the stories with people around us, that I not only tell them the information, but also spread them with messages and verses and the stories. It is useful that we focused on the one life story like Abraham, and that allows us to connect the events smoothly, and it makes the stories much more interesting. Yeah, and what you were saying actually in the middle of this is actually directly coming out of a language in the Philippines that's in a restricted area. They're actually Muslim. There's very little access actually, even less than in some of the Arab countries. Her expression what she means is, I don't only have the words that to repeat, but I can actually now communicate a message to help oh. people to draw meaning from this. And, and actually, that started happening with them. This is beautiful, Dirk, because what I'm seeing here, what you're saying is, especially in a country like you just described in this portion of the Philippines, where it's restricted, things like printed Bibles can be confiscated, destroyed. But this is where the message is 
engraved on the heart of people. And they're in turn being able to share that what's stored on the inside. The beauty of internalizing is that basically I, myself, have to deal with the information because in order to make it mine, it starts to affect me. You're saying that those who are attending these workshops might start that workshop not having a relationship with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, we've had quite some people. I was in Botswana doing earlier project. And one morning, uh, one of the ladies came in and says, I'd like to have a white heart. And I was saying, okay, I knew what she was going. She probably had seen a tract before about a white heart. But we had been doing the stories, actually a panorama of the scripture, to help them to engage what Jesus has really done for us. And so as we kind of start to ask questions, sure enough. And so she that morning embraced the love of Jesus so readily, but also with an understanding that was way deeper than just, you know, uh, me asking a simple question or giving you a simple tract. Because she had been listening and engaging with these passages, it started to speak to her heart and God started to help opening up to understand really what he had for her. Oh, Dirk, that is so beautiful. Again, just God's message, that the hope that Jesus Christ offers our human hearts, the gift that he provided through that death on the cross and the multitude of sins that his blood covers, you know, so beautiful that God has allowed you for so many years to engage mission, in this case, Wycliffe Bible translators. Uh, can we point the conversation as we start to wrap up into this generation and raising the next generation of mission-minded people? The Western church seems to be drifting you used to would see missionaries have more participation in congregations when they came off the field. Or I know many churches are partnering with countries and, and missionaries and fields, and they're sending their church teams there to go take a, a two-week or maybe a, a few-week trip to do ministry. And that's all good. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. Can you speak into future generation of missionaries to take the gospel mandate, the great commission that we're, we've been given by our Savior? Yeah, I think one thing is not necessarily look as much to organizations. I mean, I'm actually part of what's called Spoken Worldwide, a small organization. So we're partnering with different organizations and all being part of the workers in God's vineyard. Now, that is a total different look to earlier on. There was much, okay, my missions organization, my denomination, we do this and we do that. The other one is we did a lot of things for people. And then we wanted them to own it afterwards. Well, we brought it a lot with our culture and our ways. Me, Dutch, you would be American. Whatever it is, but we bring a lot of things in that not necessarily help them connect with God within their own worldview, within their own culture. And so right now, our key focus, and that's what we need people for, and just as many people, only in a different way. Are we willing to come alongside and be catalysts? models in our lives and helping them. So the empowerment of God building his church is right there from the beginning with them and not through others. And then we have to reestablish an ownership or change an ownership, but it's God journeying with them. And actually, one of the reasons why I see this so important, I was in an Asian country. There the people, there were Muslims, were going to the mosque and they were praying to the imam as basically the intermediator between them and God. And a friend of ours who was Muslim went with us and said, you know, I love to go here. I said, how come? Well, I grew up here, yeah, and I can pray for these people. They don't need an intermediator, not somebody in between them and God. God wants to relate directly to them. 
And that's, I think, also one of the things I'm learning more and more. That's how God wants to build his churches. Because when I see some of these churches with this first-generation believers without people planning a church, I stand in awe and I learn from their dedication and love. Wow. Man, it's so deep and so real, and it's not fueled or fostered by others, yet at the same time, there's partnership. Yeah. Dirk, thanks for sharing that. I think that's a great insight. We do need to model and take a inventory, if you will, of the way we have done things in the past as the American church, because we have a tendency to think, you know, it's our way or the highway is the best way, but to partner, as you said, and to allow really the Holy Spirit to do the work that he desires to do in all nations, to bring all the glory to Jesus in building his kingdom and building his church, right? It's about his name, not ours. Yes, not ours. Oh, I love that. This has been so wonderful to have you stop by. Now, if friends want to know more information about the ministry God has called you and Sandy to, to do Bible translations, these oral projects, I know you're on Facebook. How can we connect with you? You can connect through Spoken Worldwide, the partner that I'm serving with right now. They actually have their offices in Dallas. You can just look them up online. And uh, there will be a profile that uh, is mine on there as well as others. So you kind of have an idea also why I'm involved in this kind of work. Uh, You can look that up. And then also uh, there is another website. It's called engagingwiththeeternal.org. It's all written together, engagingwiththeeternal.org. And there's about 60 articles, 60-some articles, that really um, are for practical ways of people getting engaged in ministry. And it also has a script of a children's book in there called The Giant Mango Tree. Oh, really? And Yeah, and it's really, I remember reading it for an 80-year-old friend of mine, and boy, he was in tears afterwards. Oh. I haven't been able to publish it otherwise yet, but it's in there if you, you know, like to read it, and, and it's really uh, something to maybe minister to you. Email address for you, Dirk, which is D U. R.K. Meyer, M-E-I-J-E-R, at Spoken.org. That's available, right? That's available. That's right. Mm -hmm. And if somebody wanted to know how to pray for you, maybe support you and Sandy's ministry together financially, is there a way to do that? Through that email address is great. Or also, otherwise, look up Spoken Worldwide on the web. And basically, as you find me, there's also a way that you can support me and let me know. Uh, if you want specifically for prayer, write me so I can put you on a list and say, hey, whatever way you want to get through Facebook or you want to get through email, whatever way works best. Dirk, God bless you, my brother. Thank you so much for what you and Sandy both and the family have been allowing Christ to do in and through you for his kingdom, for his glory. Thanks for stopping by and sharing with Bot Radio Network. Hey, it's a lot of fun to see you again and to do this. It's a lot of fun. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.